The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. You can join us live Saturday nights at 6 p.m., Sunday mornings at 9, 10.30, or 12, or you can join us online at cityrev.org. You know, I believe probably the most riveting story in history, one of the most riveting battles in all of history that was a shining example of courage has to be the battle at the pass of Thermopylae. I mean, here you have just thousands and thousands of Persian soldiers. They've already marched through much of the world at the time. They're, they're marching into Greece. Historians estimate there could have been 70,000. There could have been well over 100,000 Persian soldiers. And they're marching into Greece and a small army of about 7,000 Greeks uh, are standing at this narrow pass. They're holding their ground. And there's huge casualties of this Persian army. Very few Greeks are losing their life. They're holding their ground until they're betrayed by uh, a, a Greek, one of their own. And the Persian soldiers sneak in behind them and have them surrounded. At this point, most of the Greek army retreats and deep into Greece, they're rebuilding and re- rebuilding their army. But King Leonidas stands firm with 300 Spartans and they are not going to budge even though they're surrounded. And there's several hundred others or maybe in total something like 1,500, maybe 2,000 people. But they stand their ground amidst overwhelming odds and every last one of them are killed. The Persians advance in, but it gave just enough time for the Greeks to rebuild their army and ultimately make a a stand against the oncoming Persians. I mean, it's a legendary story. I mean, even in in those initial generations after that happened, I mean, Leonidas was the king, became, I mean, just revered, a cult worshiping him, statues of him. I mean, became a revered person. Why? Because of his unbelievable courage facing incredible odds. I find a story like that to be just so inspiring. And if there's ever a time that we need our courage to be stirred up, it would be a time like this, an unprecedented time for, for any one of us in our lifetimes that we're, that we're facing. And so I don't know what the circumstance in your life that you're facing, but this series that we're walking through is a series designed to challenge us to take courage. So maybe you find yourself waking up today needing needing courage. Maybe you just found out that you uh, recently lost your job and you're looking for a job and you're not sure what's going to happen next. Maybe you're just in general just worried about uh, the economy. Maybe you're worried for health reasons. Maybe you're, you're like, man, this time is just, it's so, uh, I'm just so scared to even walk out of my house. Or maybe you recently uh, tested positive for COVID-19. Maybe you're struggling with that or wondering or worried for a loved one who's sick. There are so many things right now that might make us feel out of control and might make us feel scared, but we can take courage. I want to show you a story that's not going to just inspire courage. It's more than just inspire courage. It's going to do more than that. This particular story in the Bible is God wants to use to go to work in our hearts, transform and rework things in our hearts to just swell our courage 
in a time like this. I want you to hear this story. It's out of the book of Judges. This is part five in our series, Take Courage. And it's the story of Gideon. We're looking in Judges chapter seven. We're gonna kick it off in verse one. I want you to hear this story. Um, Really, really incredible story. This is Judges chapter seven, starting in verse one. Here's what it says. Then Jerubel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Harad. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. All right, let's just get our bearings here. What's happening? This guy Gideon is leading this this, uh, group of Israelite soldiers and they're rising up early in the morning and they're going to camp and their enemy, the Midianites, who have invaded their land, they're about to plunder uh, Israel take their crops, take their herds. They're about to march through Israel and take all that away. And so Gideon is this leader who's taking the people of Israel, the army of Israel, to fight against them. Now, who is this guy Gideon? If you're just joining us, who's this guy Gideon? Is he a great war hero? Is he a military leader? He's a farmer. He's the last guy you would think would be leading this group. The one thing that sets him apart is that God picked him. God picked him and said, I'm going to use you. And here's what God promised him right off the bat. God promised him, I am going to give you your enemies into your hands. They have been oppressing Israel, but not anymore. I am going to give you victory. Now, here's the thing about Gideon. Gideon, we find out through this story, he is just constantly afraid. God did not pick a very courageous guy to do this, but he's going to teach him about courage along the way, and we're going to learn about courage along the way. One of the uh, first things that God asked Gideon to do, we looked at this a couple weeks ago, one of the first things that God called Gideon to do is to go tear down the altar to the false god Baal. But he was too scared to do it during the day. So in the night, he tears down the altar to this false god, to this idol, Baal. And the next morning, all the men of the city are so mad, they want to kill Gideon. They want to kill him for tearing down this altar to Baal. Now his dad, Gideon's dad, Joash, he says to these men, he says, Look, if Baal is a real god, then let Baal deal with Gideon. Let, let Baal fight Gideon. Now, Who's Baal? Is he, maybe he's a nice God. Maybe he's a friendly God. Is he very scary? Well, he's the God of thunder, God of the storm God. And he's often depicted, their idols depicted him often with a lightning bolt in his hand. And so he's basically saying, look, if, if Baal is real, if he's an actual real God, then we'll see what he does with Gideon. Why would we fight for Baal if Baal is a real God? And at that point, Gideon got the nickname Jerubal, which means let Baal fight against Gideon. Let Baal contend with him. So that was Gideon's first challenge, and he was afraid. His second challenge is he's supposed to rally this army. God's starting to bring people from various tribes in Israel to Gideon to fight against, uh, to fight against the Midianites. But Gideon is afraid. 
And what we talked about, Pastor Justin taught us last week that even though God said, I'm going to give them to you in your hand, Gideon's like, please, I know that's what you said, but could you just give me a sign that you're really going to come through God? And so he took a fleece, which is like wool, like uh, sheep's wool or lamb's wool, and he laid it on the ground and he said, God, look, just would you do this sign for me? If you're really going to protect me, if you're going to do what you said you're going to do, if you're going to uphold your promise, then just show me a sign. When I wake up the next morning, let, there, let the whole ground be dry, but let there be dew on the fleece, on the, on the lamb's or sheep's wool. Sure enough, the next morning wakes up, looks at the fleece. Ground is dry, fleece is sopping wet. He wrings it out and he says to God, God, look, I'm sorry, don't be mad. Just give me one more sign that you're gonna do what, you're, what you said you're gonna do. Can you just do one more thing? This time, could actually the ground be wet with dew tomorrow morning and then the fleece actually be dry? So he goes to sleep the next mo- the, that night. The next morning he wakes up and sure enough, the ground is wet, the fleece is dry. Now, these that's where we ended in chapter 6. These words are what's next. It's chapter 7, verse 1. It just says, Gideon gets up early in the morning and the men go and encamp a little ways away from their enemy. Now, here's what's interesting. After all that, after all those signs, after God being patient with him and showing him those signs, there's not a word from Gideon after that second sign. He's not like, oh, thank you, Lord, or oh, a prayer of thanks. God showed me a sign. Wow, he, thank you for stirring my faith. Or you know what, I'm going to build an altar. I'm going to make a sacrifice to God, or I'm going to sing this song to God. None of that. Silence from Gideon. Why? He doesn't want to do this. <laughs> he does not want to go to battle. He doesn't want to be the leader of the army. He doesn't want to be in the army. He's, he sees that sign, and if anything, he's dreading what God has called him to do. I set all that up because it's important to understand that backstory and where Gideon is as we read this story. Now, one other thing before we go into the next verses. It's interesting that the narrator refers to Gideon by his nickname, Jerubbaal. Refers to him that in, in chapter 7, verse 1, what we just read. Why is that interesting? Because the narrator is setting up the story with his nickname, let Baal contend with him. Because here's the thing. If Gideon is successful, that means that Baal failed. If Gideon is successful... That means that Baal can't fight for himself. If Gideon is successful, that means Baal didn't strike him down. If Gideon is successful, then that means that Baal is a false god. So the narrator is keeping that nickname before us because that's going to reveal a theological truth that all of Israel needs to hear. All right, let's pick it up. Judges chapter 7, let's pick it up in verse 2. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into, into their hand. Lest, watch this, lest Israel boast over me saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. Okay. God says to Gideon, all right, so Gideon's like, oh, I don't want to do this. 
I, I, I kind of wish that the whole thing with the fleece hadn't happened because I, I, maybe I'd have an, an out. Doesn't even say anything to God. Gets up the next morning. He goes off with, with the army that is, is really, it says earlier in chapter 6, the only reason they're following Gideon is because the Holy Spirit is just drawing them to this battle and drawing them to Gideon. And they're, they're following Gideon. They, they camp. And then God says, hey, by the way, we got we to gotta shrink the army a little bit. We got to shrink the army, he says, because I don't want Israel patting themselves on the back saying, we just saved ourselves. Look how great our army is. We're incredible. We fought off the Midianites and the Amalekites and all these armies against us. Look at what we've done. He says, I don't want Israel getting credit for something that I am doing. So Gideon, we've got to shrink the army. Here's what I want you to do. He says, I want you to stand before the entire army and I want you to say, if anyone's scared, go on home. I would believe that there's probably never been a general in history that has given that speech before battle. Typically, the speech is getting everyone psyched up, all hopped up on adrenaline. But Gideon's like, look, if you're scared, just go on home. And it says 22,000 left and went home and there's only 10,000 remaining. Okay, let's do some math here for a second. Two-thirds, more than two-thirds just left. His army shrunk down by two-thirds. There's only one-third of his original army left. But that means, okay, hang with me. Let's do some math here. That means his entire army to begin with was 32,000 people. Is that good? Well, it depends on how big the other army is. In the next chapter, we'll learn that the other army is 135,000 soldiers. So it's, it was 32,000 against 135,000. Okay, what are, what's that ratio? That means for every Israelite soldier, they have to make sure they kill four of that enemy. That, they have to make sure they at least, at least four of the other enemy. Okay, if you're in a cage fight... And it's you versus four other people. And they're on the same team trying to kill you. You're all trained fighters. Those are not odds you want. Now, some of you are watching this saying, yeah, but I'm not there alone. I've got this army and this army. Okay, okay. maybe you are the exception. But for the rest of us, we're not going to beat one on four. Okay, but that's not how big the army is now. They just shrunk by two-thirds. Now there's only 10,000 left. That means it's 10,000 against 135,000. If you're in a cage fight, that would be you against 13 people. Actually, more than 13 people, but I don't know how to do a fraction of people. So you on 13 people, okay? I'm not betting on you on that fight, okay? I'm thinking that the other person is going to win, okay? Unless your name is Jet Li or Chuck Norris, you're losing that fight one on 13. Okay, if you're Gideon at this point, he's just shrunk down this army. How do you think Gideon would feel? Well, God, what are you doing? I didn't even want to be here to begin with. I didn't want to be in battle. I was a farmer. I, I'm not a, a warrior. I, I don't want to do this. He's dreading it. And it just got worse. The odds, it just, the odds are now really bad. Why would God do that? 
Well, he told them, I want everyone to know who gets credit for this, for this battle. Well, let's pick it up in verse 4. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men, but all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. Okay, God has some bad news for Gideon. Hey, you got 10,000. Odds are 13 and a half to 1. Um, it's just, I just feel like God says, I just feel like it's still too many. We got to shrink the army a little bit more. So he says, so here, we're going to do a little test. Take them down to the river. So he takes them down to the river. And, he's, and he, they all start drinking from this river. He says, I want you to watch. There are going to be some that get down and they just put their face like right in the river and they're just drinking just like an animal would go down and just drinking right out of the river. Now, that would not be my method of drinking through river because I wouldn't want to like swallow a tadpole or something, okay? But that's, some of them were doing that, okay? Just put right their face right down. They got down on their knees, put their face in the water, and they're just drinking from this river, okay? But there were some that were scooping it into their hands and drinking it out of their hands. And of the 10,000, there was 9,700 that just put their face right in the water. It's not the ratio that I thought would have happened, but 9,700 put their face right in the water. There was only 300 that cupped the water up and they drank it out of, out of their hands. So, God wants to get rid of another 300? Well, let's see. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Okay. Gideon is not sending the 300 home and keeping the 9,700. He's sending the 9,700 and keeping the 300. Let's review the odds. 300 versus 135,000. Okay. If you're in a cage match, that means you versus 450 people. They're all on the same team, okay? You on 450 people in a cage match. Now, I know some of you are saying, yeah, but I got this army and I got this. No, you don't. You're dead, okay? No one's winning that match. 300 versus 135,000, that is not good odds. That is the odds that God wants to set up. Now, 
how God is going to win this battle with 300 soldiers, you're going to have to wait to next week to hear how this story plays out. It is, it is incredible. It is brilliant. It is miraculous. It is an incredible story. But I want to just pause right here at this juncture because there's so much in here for us that intersects with where we're at right now in our lives. Because in... Um, about 480, 490 BC, there were 300 Spartans who faced off with thousands and thousands of Persians. But about a thousand years earlier than that, you've got 300 men of Israel facing against this army of Midianites and Amalekites, tens of thousands, over, well over 100,000 soldiers. But there's some differences in these two stories. Um, for one, with Leonidas and the 300 Spartans, it, it really wasn't just 300 Spartans. It was 300 Spartans and then, you know, 12, 13, 1,400 other people, maybe 2,000 other people with them. Um, still an amazing story. I mean, still legendary, amazing story. But that, that's the first thing. The other thing is um, they, they all died. All the Spartans, they, they ended up losing. I mean, they slowed down the Persian army, and they, they, it was an incredible act of bravery, but they, they lost, and they died. And third, what they were doing is just taking a defensive posture and trying to stand their ground. And, and so this story is, is different than Gideon and the 300 men, because in this case, it was literally just 300, exactly, that's it. They're going to win, and they're not going to take a defensive position. They're going to actually go on the attack. These stories, both historical, but a little bit different. They both involve 300, but they're a little bit different. But there's another even more important difference. Because when you hear the story of Gideon and the 300, you can't approach it like you're hearing the story of, of Leonidas and his Spartans. Because when you hear that story of Leonidas and the Spartans, I mean, it's just, you know, it just is inspiring. You want to just, you know, get, a, get an injection of adrenaline and say, okay, I can face, you know, my, the, the, the overwhelming odds that are stacked against me and dig in and, you know, beat my chest and feel like I can do it. And, and, and that story does inspire in that way, but you can't really do that with Gideon. I mean, Leonidas was, was full of just ferocious courage, but Gideon wasn't. Gideon wasn't. He was afraid. And I want to approach it from Gideon's perspective, not Leonidas' perspective, because it, what we need in this moment is more than just a shot in the arm and some inspiration. That'll last for a day or two. We need something far more, and the story of Gideon offers us far more than just a little inspiration to courage. It wants to rearrange some things inside of us and transform us so that courage wells up from within. It wants to do something completely different. So he approaches from Gideon's perspective. I mean, he goes into this kicking and screaming. He doesn't want to do this. From his perspective, this whole story sounds incredible to us and maybe like, wow, it's going to be a great battle. But from Gideon's perspective, this was a, he was in the middle of a trial. He's like, God, I'm dreading this. And then it gets worse. God shrinks his army. It goes from bad to worse. And then he shrinks it even more and it goes to impossible. This isn't a rah-rah story for Gideon. This is bad to worse to impossible. 
And maybe you felt like that before. Maybe you felt like you had a situation that, man, this is so hard, and you're praying, God, just, could you make this better? Could you make this better, Lord? Could you answer my prayer? And then it goes from that. He doesn't answer, so he doesn't say yes to what you're asking. It actually gets worse. And you're like, God, I, I don't know what to do with this. I asked you for this, but this just got worse. And then maybe now you dig in and like, God, I'm, trying, I'm a little bit, you know, confused, but I'm still going to try and have faith. Then it goes from worse to impossible. And now you're maybe disoriented. And see, what this story is helpful is I want you to see the story and, and know what God is capable of. He's capable of making circumstances get, go from bad to worse to impossible. Why? Why did he do this to Gideon? Well, first of all, it starts out with reminding of Gideon's nickname, Jerubal. God wants to show something about Baal. Gideon's success means that Baal, it reveals him as a false god. He's making a statement to Israel about Baal, but also by shrinking the army. God was very clear why he did that, because he wanted to get glory for the work that he was doing and restoring Israel to who really deserves the glory and the honor. Why did God allow Gideon to walk through such a difficult situation? Well, the reality is God's number one agenda was not Gideon's comfort. Gideon's comfort is not God's number one agenda. God has a bigger agenda than that. He's trying to reveal something to his people about himself. God is revealing who he is, their protector, their defender, their provider, their God. That is his number one agenda. And if that means walking Gideon through a very difficult thing, he's willing to do that because Gideon's comfort is not God's number one agenda. And if it's not God's number one agenda for Gideon's comfort, then that's true of you and me. My comfort, your comfort, is not God's number one agenda. That's not his highest value. That's not the thing that he prioritizes over everything else. He has a higher, a higher agenda he has a higher good. He is revealing to the world who he is. In other words, God's number one agenda is for his own glory. Let that sink in for a second. His number one agenda, his highest goal is that he gets the glory. Now, man, that's sometimes the, you hear that, you're like, man, that kind of doesn't sit right with me, you know, really? I mean, and I, don't, I think it doesn't sit well initially because you're like, you know, anytime I'm around a person who is self-centered, that's a turnoff. And I want to say to that person, man, look, the universe doesn't revolve around you, buddy. But what about the one being in all the universe that the universe does revolve around. 
Maybe the, the reason that's a turnoff in a person is because that person is operating like they're God. They're operating as if they are God and everything revolves around them and everything's for their own glory. Maybe that's such a turnoff because that's so wrong. Well, then what should we expect from God? Should we then expect God to act like a human? No, God is the center of the universe. He's going to uphold that truth. If God puts something higher than himself as a higher priority than himself, then he is putting an idol up first. He's putting something higher than God. God has to be, by definition, God has to be God-centered. He's got to be first and foremost for his own glory because he is the center of the universe. He's the creator of the universe and all that is created is designed to first and foremost bring him glory. But see, there's a challenge with that. And so, so often there are people, people that come to church, people that would call themselves Christians, people who would say, yeah, I worship God. But so often the way they approach the spiritual side of their, of their lives, their, the faith side of their lives, they approach it the way uh, one pastor named John Piper put it. He put it like this. He says, many people are willing to be God-centered as long as God is man-centered. Many people say, um, man, I don't like a God that's puts himself first, but he has to. He's God. That's by definition, he is first. That's just true. I'd rather have a God that I'll put him first and he puts me first. I put him first and he puts, you know, us first. But think about that. If it's like, I'll put God first if he puts me first, that's kind of circular. Who am I ultimately putting first? I'm putting myself first. See, what this passage reminds us of is Gideon's comfort is not God's number one agenda. His own glory is. His, his, his mission to reveal himself to the world is. And so our comfort's not God's number one agenda. I, I remind us of that. This passage reminds us of that. Because so often when uncomfortable, painful trials happen in our life, we're confused, disoriented. Like, why is this happening? And we kind of say, God, what? Like, I'm doing everything right. Okay, why is this happening? I've been, I've been praying faithfully, and I've been, I mean, I've even, maybe I've even been fasting and praying, and I've been praying correctly, and I've been praying this way, and yet I'm not getting what I want. Wait a minute, God, I, I've, been, I've been giving generously. God, I've been kind to people. I, I handle myself with integrity. I'm, I, I go to church. God, I, I read my Bible. Then why is this happening? And, and what that, we get confused and disoriented because we've been operating inside with the wrong view of what it means to follow Jesus, with what it means to have faith and to have God on the throne of our hearts. What it actually means to be a worshiper of the one true almighty God is that we join in him with our number one agenda being God's glory. So we have a posture and a heart that says this, God, if by my comfort or my pain you are glorified, hallelujah. God, if by my success or by my failure, it brings glory to you, that's a win. God, if by my wealth or by my poverty, if it's by my, my rich, 
healthy relationships or by my loneliness? God, if, if by my fame or by my irrelevance, I bring glory to you, mission accomplished. God, if I see my dreams realized or don't, but my life brings you glory, then is a life complete and well spent. That's what it means to actually have God on the throne in our hearts. That's what it looks like to be a worshiper. You say, I don't know, man. I mean, it sounds like you're saying just like give everything up. Like I just surrender everything. Like I just kind of, you know, I give everything up to him and I, you know, don't hold on to anything. You know, just full all out surrender. Exactly. That is exactly what it is. It's full all-out surrender to God. What this passage is teaching us is that God's got a plan to reveal himself to this world. And what it means to worship him is to join in that plan, join in that plan regardless of what that means for us. See, sometimes when uncomfortable things happen, we get confused, disoriented. We maybe have a faith crisis. And I wonder if sometimes the problem is we've written a contract with God God, I'm going to do these spiritual chores and I'm expecting you to bless my hopes and dreams. But that's a contract that we wrote that God never signed. God is calling us to follow after him and be true worshipers of him. You say, okay, if it's total surrender, why would I do that? Like that doesn't sound appealing. Why would I do something like that? Well, I think if you think hard enough and you take a step back, despite the things that you crave in your heart, whatever that thing is that you're after that would make you feel complete, is it success? Is it, is it feeling loved, feeling like you belong? Is it feeling like other people make you feel valuable? Is it, is it wealth? Is it vanity? Is it popularity? What is it that your soul is craving that your soul, that inside, you're telling yourself, if you just got that, you would feel complete. Because I think if you take a step back and you look at the people that have what you long for, they don't feel any more complete than you do right now. I was recently um, reading in the Bible the story of Solomon. And Solomon, I mean, it's just an extraordinary thing what God does with Solomon. I mean, he makes him wiser than any other king on earth. He makes him more wealthy than any other uh, king on earth. He makes him, um, he gives him everything. I mean, he's got, he has pleasure, he's wealth, fame, brilliance. He's got everything. And you're like, man, God, you bless Solomon with everything. What must that be like? God, why don't you bless more of us like that with Solomon? I mean, what must that be like to be Solomon? Well, Solomon wrote a whole book about it because he walked away from God and he wrote an entire book called Ecclesiastes. And you know what he wrote? Emptiness. Emptiness. All of it is empty. See, what God wants to save you from is all of those things that you're keeping on the throne in the end is going to make you feel empty. It's a mirage that tricks our heart and our soul to claw and to climb after it. And he's saying, you were designed 
to worship after, worship me and me alone. That's what will make you feel fulfilled. See, Christian, when you started following Jesus, you joined a movement of people who are giving their lives to one fundamental agenda, which is by our life or by our death, we are going to reveal Jesus to the cities we're placed in. We're going to reveal Jesus throughout the world by our life or by our death. We have one fundamental agenda, reveal who Jesus is so that people may worship God and find reconciliation and forgiveness to their creator because of the work that Jesus did, their savior who died on the cross, washing away our sins and rising again from the dead so that we can have life for eternity because of the work of Jesus, to reveal Jesus as the savior that he is. That's why the name of our church is City Rev, because we're revealing Jesus and we know if we reveal Jesus and join in the effort to reveal Jesus to our city, we know it's going to revolutionize our city. You joined a movement, Christ follower, where your number one agenda, regardless of what it costs, is to reveal Jesus. See, here's what the world tells us. The world tells us to look deep down inside our hearts to find ourselves. We're told to look deep and down and deep down. We feel this, we feel this emptiness. We, we, we feel like this dissonance with our souls and we're trying to figure out what's, what's the meaning of my life? What's the purpose of my life? And so we're told by, the, by our society and by our culture and by our generation to look down into our souls and to find ourselves. But talk about the ultimate echo chamber is to just... Your mind wonders, how do I answer the question? And your mind goes to your mind to just bounce around with that continual question. But what the scripture says, what the Bible says, is that the one who wired you and created you said, I can tell you what you were wired for. I can tell you what you were deep down designed for. You were wired and designed for God Almighty to be on the throne of your life and to give your life to bring glory to him. That is what fundamentally puts the pieces together throughout your life of what the purpose of who you are, the purpose he made you for. You want to find that deep satisfaction and purpose in this life that you're longing for, this deep down sense of identity of who you are, who you are made to be, what your purpose is? The one who made you knows. He says, you were wired to be a worshiper of God. That's how you're going to find the deep down satisfaction and purpose you're longing for. You say, oh, that's, that, that does sound satisfying. Here's the problem. You can't get it. Because you and I are separated from God. We started each one of us our lives worshiping ourselves. We're still on the throne. And sometimes we even use church. And many, you might be realizing, man, I, have I ever worshiped God? I've just been using going to church or using a Christian label to just get what I want. I haven't totally surrendered to God. This has just been Christian self-help to help me just do life a little better. See, to become a worshiper of God, that's not something we can do. We're, we're stranded, lost in the sin of our self-worship. 
But see, there was a hero that rose up far better than Gideon, far more courageous, named Jesus, who made a way for us to be saved so we could be restored to God and find that deep down, that deep down satisfaction of realigning ourselves for how we were made to worship God, and that's Jesus. And he courageously, without a questioning word, was obedient to God, walked into the battle that cost him much discomfort. It was agony, excruciating on the cross, and he faced all of that for God's purpose to save us. And so he's offering that to you today. Find that ultimate purpose, following after Jesus. He saved you so you could be forgiven and realigned to your creator, the one true almighty God. Take that step. Find salvation today. Is that you? Do you want to make it right today? Do you want to realign how you are wired to find salvation? Then let me lead you in this simple prayer right there, whether you're watching on your phone, on a tablet, on your TV, whether you're watching on a computer. Just take this moment. Let me lead you in a prayer. Just repeat this right in your heart to God. Pray this to God. Just say, God, I surrender. I know that I'm on the throne, but, and maybe you may even say, I know that I've used you, but I know I'm still on the throne. But I want to surrender it all to you. You are on the throne. Thank you for making a way for me, Jesus. I give you my life and I'm going to follow after you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if that was your prayer just then, that was a very personal moment between you and your creator. Very personal. And that moment, if you just prayed that, transformed your eternity once and for all you are saved and will spend eternity with your creator reunited in heaven. That is an incredible personal moment. Your life has changed. He's now going to go to work in your heart, transforming you. Very personal, but not private. That's not something you hide and keep to yourself. That's something you share. Is you are now a part of a larger movement. You're part of a church. You're part of, you're a part of our church. And so we want to know. We want to celebrate with you. We want to walk along with you on this journey. In fact, more specifically, we would love to send you a Bible. So here's what I want you to do. If that was your prayer just then, I want you to click on cityrev.org slash faith. cityrev.org slash faith. You can click right there on the screen, or you can see it there in the chat, cityrev.org slash faith. Click on that. It's just, just asking for a little bit of information just so we can send you a Bible because we want to celebrate with you because we're so excited in the step that you're taking. Hey, church, we're going to end our time together with some worship, and we're going to start with this first song, reminded that one that we've put on the throne, that God, he's good, and he loves us. He deserves to be on the throne no matter what because he's God, but he loves us, and he would stop at nothing to show us that love. He didn't even spare a thing. Let's worship together. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. 
If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.